This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Business of Healthcare. Here is your host, Professor Emeritus of Legal Studies and Business Ethics, Arnold J. Rosoff. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Business of Healthcare. I'm happy to be with you. Again, I'm one of the occasional hosts of the Business of Healthcare. And today uh, we have three guests. Two of them will be in the studio with me, although only one is here at the present time, uh, and one is joining us by telephone. I'll introduce them in just a moment. We're going to have a very interesting discussion today about uh, what you might call it uh, at-home genetic testing services or direct-to-consumer or over-the-counter genetic testing services. Uh, companies like 23andMe, Ancestry DNA, and there are a few others. Uh, the market is uh, still somewhat in flux now as they emerge, but they're really wonderful things that being, uh, can be achieved through genetic testing and letting people know about their genetic background, predisposition for diseases, etc. But uh, uh, there's some problems along with that as well, and we're going to be talking about them. Let me introduce our guests to you. Um, first, here in the studio with us, is Miss Erin Gordon. Erin is with Genome Medical, Genome Medical, excuse me for mispronouncing that. She's a board-certified genetic counselor, has more than 15 years of clinical and research experience in neurology, oncology, and general genetics. Uh, she worked, uh, before joining Genome Medical, she worked with 23andMe as the director of clinical development. Now with Genome Medical, she's the vice president for clinical operations. Um, she's past president of the American Board of Genetic Counseling, has served on the board of directors for the National Society of Genetic Counselors. And uh, from our conversations leading up to this uh, program, uh, she knows everything about at-home or DTC, uh, genetic counseling. Good morning, Erin. You want to say a, uh, hello to our listeners? Well, thank you so much for having me. That might be an overstatement, knowing everything, but certainly an area that I've been well-steeped in over the last 20 years or so. It's all relative. <laughs> relative to me, you know a tremendous amount. Also with us, I think he's here now on the telephone, is Dr. Arthur Kaplan. Are you there, Art? I'm here uh, in a state of utter ignorance, but I'm here. That's so far not true. <laughs> um, Art and I were colleagues for 10 or more years when he was on the faculty at the University of Pennsylvania. He created the Bioethics Center here um, and the Department of Medical Ethics, which I was privileged to be um, a member of. Uh, but he was lured away by NYU, and now at NYU, he's the MIDI professor and founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics at the NYU School of Medicine in New York City. So it's a real treat and an honor to have uh, have Art join us. Um, I would like to walk you through Art's bio, um, but that would take the rest of the program. And no slight to uh, our other two guests, but this is an amazing resume here. Um, um, you probably already know of Art as one of the most... Uh, uh, frequently turned to and best-known bioethicists. You turn on the television, there he is. And there's a question, there he is. And the answers are so great and so provocative. Art, it's wonderful to, to be with you again. Hey, thanks for having me, Skip. And uh, the third person who's going to be joining us today but is not here now is Robert Field. Rob Field is a professor of law at the Klein School of Law at Drexel University, close to Penn here. He's also... Uh, in the Department of uh, Health Management and Policy at Drexel's School of Public Health. And for almost 25 years, 
Rob co-taught the health law course here at Wharton with me. He's an adjunct faculty member at Wharton and a member, as I am, of the uh, uh, a senior fellow, I should have said, of the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics here at Penn. Um, Rob is the author of two books, Mother of Invention, How the Government Created Free Market Healthcare, and also Healthcare Regulation in America, Complexity, Confrontation, and Compromise. He's a master of alliteration, among other things. And Rob will be joining us in person in a few minutes. Um, Let me get started now, though. Um, As I said, the show is about direct-to-consumer genetic testing. Uh, I signed up for 23andMe. I bought a, a kit for my wife for Christmas. And she was fascinated to find out what a mongrel she was, uh, how many uh, different uh, genetic strains come together in her. Um, so she was interested in the ancestry and genealogy parts Hello? of it, but also the, uh, uh, the information it gave her about her own health, things that she should watch out for, things that she might want to do to improve and maintain her health, things that she might want to avoid doing. Um, and there are those two strains. We'll talk about it some more as we go on. Um, in general, let me say that our show is divided, or our discussion today is going to be divided into three parts. We're going to talk about this burgeoning industry. Aaron's going to lead us off in that, um, and the wonderful things that it can bring to us, both as individuals and as a society. And then we're going to be talking about the issues, uh, the problems uh, that may arise. Some of them, I think, are very real. Some of them are made maybe more imagined than real, but we'll talk about the issues and the problems. And then in the third sector, we're going to be talking about what kind of regulation there is, what kind of regulation there ought to be, what agencies, federal, state, uh, professional, etc., might be doing that. Throughout all of this, we'd love to have your participation, not just as listeners, but as commenters or questioners. So if you'd like to call us, our phone number is one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two. 7866. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at biz, B-I-Z, radio 111. And you can email us with questions or comments at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. So let's get started. Uh, Aaron, uh, let me start out by asking you to give us an overview of this burgeoning industry. It's dramatic and it's growing faster all the time. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the Direct-to-consumer genetic testing industry, you should really think of it as over-the-counter genetic testing, similar to um, <clears throat> drugs that you can get over-the-counter in the drugstore, like allergy medication or things like that, where you don't need a prescription. These are genetic tests that can be accessed directly by an individual without a physician order. There's lots of different names assigned to that, direct-to-consumer, at-home, patient-initiated, Um, And ultimately, they all mean the same thing, which is genetic testing you as an individual can access without the assistance of a physician. The field of DTC testing has really been around since 2007. Um, So we're going on 11 years, almost 12 years. Um, And there's been a pretty significant evolution over that time. So, you know, in the early days, uh, there were a couple of leaders in the field, 23andMe, which is still around, and a few others, including Navigenics, which uh, no longer exist in the industry. Um, and over time, and with pressure from uh, regulating bodies such as the FDA, 
those each of those organizations either shut down or went through a fairly significant transformation. So, for example, um, 23andMe, Navigenics, uh, Decode, and Pathway Genomics were all asked to stop uh, offering health-related direct-to-consumer genetic testing. And the argument was that they were offering uh, a medical device that was not regulated by the FDA. Um, again, some of those companies uh, dissolved or were purchased, and, and that portion of the business was stopped. 23andMe went through a different type of evolution. They they were able to maintain as a company, uh, but they went through a period starting in November of 23andMe, uh, November of 2013, where they stopped offering any health information, uh, again, at the request of, of the FDA, and then went through a process of seeking FDA authorization and reemerged with health information in early 2015. You mentioned FDA regulation. Um, is there significant regulation from other federal agencies? And I'm going to ask you about state in a minute as well. So all laboratory testing is um, that's used for clinical purposes is overseen by CLIA, the Clinical Laboratory Improvement Amendment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so most genetic testing uh, that's done for clinical purposes, again, so this would typically be testing that your physician orders uh, in pursuit of a diagnosis or uh, health information for you, those tests are typically run in a lab that has uh, CLIA authorization. And to my knowledge... Let me ask for clarification on Mm -hmm. that. It's important that these labs be regulated because they've got to be accurate in Mm -hmm. what they say. Do you have any information about the accuracy or reliability level, and does it vary significantly from one company to another? So um, CLIA, in theory, regulates uh, the validity of testing, right? They Mm. require certain standards be in place, um, and state bodies regulate um, CLIA status within different labs, um, and have different levels of review that they that they put in place, with some states being much more stringent than others. For example, New York State's um, CLIA certification process is is far more stringent than than the rest of the states. Um, if you want to offer testing to any to the residents of any state, you need CLIA authorization from that state, uh, or you need to be in a state that uh, doesn't require that type of um, cross-state review. Okay. We'll put that on hold for a little bit because Rob Field, when he joins mm-hmm. us, has paid some more attention to regulation. So we'll do that. Let me let me go back to what uh, we were starting off to talk about. Um, it seems to me that there are two main benefits that we may get from this boom in DTC genetic testing. One is individuals can look to it to improve or maintain their own health, things that they need to know about, uh, things that they should do to be healthier, things that they shouldn't do to avoid being less healthy um, on an individual level. But also, it opens the door to a tremendous amount of research. We can find out things about not just population at whole, but um, subsets and very small subsets, what we 
have come to call precision medicine, mm-hmm. where we recognize that uh, certain people are far more predisposed to certain, not just diseases, but also to side effects from medicines and so forth. So we can, we can make uh, medical care much more precise and useful. Um, are there other uh, main areas of benefit that we can get from this uh, beyond the individual and the research? I think there is a population component to that. So, you know, the idea of research is that we're going to um, learn about how to treat diseases uh, based on their genetic buckets that they might fit into, right? So not every breast cancer is the same. You can slice and dice that in lots of different ways, and genetics is one element of that. Um, And so I think through research in genetics, we can help targeted populations. We can also help the individuals within those populations. So some people pursue genetic testing from a completely altruistic perspective. They want to contribute to research. Maybe they are completely healthy at this point, but are hoping that their sample as a control contributes to that information. Some people pursue it from a more commercial perspective, um, in hopes of learning something that might impact them personally. I see. I want to congratulate Art Kaplan at this point. Uh, in the 10-plus years that we were colleagues together, I've never known Art to keep his uh, keep silent this long when something's <laughs> touching on his, his area. Uh, Art recently wrote uh, an op-ed about uh, a 23andMe advertisement mm-hmm. uh, focusing on uh, knowing what you're genes are and using that as a basis for deciding which soccer team to to root for. Do you want to speak about that, Art? We're going to talk about it in greater detail later on in the program, but uh, let's let's give you an opportunity here. So this is a little bit on the downside of some of the testing. It's clear that uh, the direct-to-consumer uh, genetic testing companies that we see online and advertising, some of them have moved to get approval for health information, but a lot of it is what I call recreational genomics. Find out who your ancestors are. There's some stuff online that suggests maybe you could find a mate, <laughs> uh, a romantic partner by uh, testing your genes or predict whether your child will be an, a good athlete. Uh, yeah design a special diet for you, I've seen, and there are many, many others. I think the science there is weak, and I think people are sort of uh, being ripped off a little bit when when they pursue some of the recreational stuff. And that op-ed I wrote was a big genetic testing company. It's 23andMe, heavy advertiser, one of the more prominent ones. And the, uh, the reason I'm angry about their ad campaign is they teamed up with Fox Sports. And uh, listeners will know that the World Cup is on its way here, but it's on its way here uh, from Russia to be televised without a U.S. team. There's no American team. We didn't make it. So Fox Sports is desperate. They're fearful that no one's going to watch these games, and I think they've booked 40 million hours of time, you know, of Iceland playing Panama, and they're kind of nervous about the ratings. So somebody concocted the idea, well, maybe we could get people to root for their genetic uh, uh, roots, their ancestry. And they partnered up with 23andMe, and I can't imagine sports fans, if some are listening, haven't heard this campaign. It goes something like, 
the World Cup seems far away, but maybe if you got a genetic test from 23andMe, you would find out that you had genetic commonality with uh, some of the stars of uh, world football or soccer, as we call it. Or maybe you'd find out that you overlap the Argentinians and you can root for them. Well, this is an area where I think they're promoting racism and pseudoscience to make some money. The idea that there's an Argentinian genotype or a French genotype, if you looked at the French team that's competing, I'll bet there are half of them come from African backgrounds uh, immigrated into the country. The idea that there's a Panamanian genotype, for example, is pretty funny since it became a country, I think, in 1910. It probably hasn't sorted out much in the way of genetics. And basically, they're appealing to this idea that the nations of the world are divided by discernible and characteristic genotypes, which I would say is not true. They're saying root for genes, don't root for skill, or in scientific terms, don't root for phenotypes, who's good, or who might be fun to watch, like Iceland, root for biology. That seems to me a bad message. And then they're also saying root for genetic commonalities, but the kind of commonalities that you might find between someone who had an ancestor who was Portuguese and the current Portuguese soccer team are probably more about genes controlling bone density or, you know, uh, autoimmune uh, responses or something. So you're rooting for some bizarre genes. So that's a long-winded way of saying, I think some of the activities of these companies are not admirable. They're fostering racism to make money. They're touting bad science. And that, I think, is troubling. Let me stop you at that point. We want to go into it some, in some more detail, but we've just been joined uh, here in the studio by Rob Field. Uh, Rob, I already told people how wonderful you are and uh, what you do at Drexel and your connections here with Penn and with me. Uh, but welcome. Say hello to our listeners. Thank you. Glad to be here. Okay. <laughs> that was short and sweet. Uh, okay. We've started off, uh, before you arrived, Rob, talking about how this direct-to-consumer genetic testing uh, has benefits for the individual, but also has benefits for society in that it enables a tremendous amount of research. Um, the latter certainly requires a broad sharing of information. You've got to make this genetic information available to researchers, um, maybe initially academic researchers, but uh, non-academics as well. Pharmaceutical companies want to know where they should put their money. As we uh, start recognizing more than we have in the past that people aren't all the same, or males aren't all the same, or Caucasians aren't all the same, that there are subgroups and sub-sub-subgroups. Um, this move towards precision medicine uh, requires that we know a lot more about people at a very intimate, detailed level. But sharing that information um, raises some problems. We're going to be going into those in, in some greater detail later. But um, when we talk about the DTC genetic testing, um, we've got the benefits that individuals can reap uh, from that and the benefits that society can reap. And it seems to me that at some level there's some tension between those two. And particularly it comes around with regard to the sharing of information because we're very sensitive about personal health information. I call it PHI. Why don't you weigh in right, on that? Right, um, right. I think with all medical research, there's a balance between the benefit to the individual and the benefit to society. 
uh, the subjects in a clinical trial are putting themselves at risk, usually, uh, for the greater good of, of expanding medical knowledge. Uh, genetics presents a unique set of circumstances that we're not quite sure how to deal with legally or ethically. Uh, your information is now available uh, almost to the world. Um, we had thought we could keep it confidential. We found out that it's impossible to maintain genetic information confidentially. Uh, it takes a, a moderately good hacker to, to get into the database uh, with a little bit of sleuthing to identify you. I think the day will come before too long where uh, really anyone with a smartphone can figure out how to get someone's genetic information. Uh, so we now have a new level of risk that we don't have in the conventional clinical trial. And I'm not sure we really know uh, how to deal with it. The existing laws are very specific and, and very limited. Um, they don't deal with a situation in which your second cousin can uh, donate information to a database and then a sleuth can figure out uh, who you are and find out some personal information about you. Um, I think we're just uh, beginning uh, to to address that. Right. And people put this information up on their Facebook page and, and share it in other ways. Uh, well, so. you, you have a, a couple of issues. One is the people who put it up uh, voluntarily, who go to 23andMe or another commercial site, uh, usually uh, more out of curiosity uh, to, to see uh, uh, who, who their ancestors might have been, as Art was pointing out, uh, with uh, not a whole uh, lot of accuracy. Uh, there's the people who are doing it for clinical reasons, uh, the people whose care will be aided uh, through personalized medicine or other knowledge about their particular genome. Um, but to store that information and keep it confidential is, is a major challenge. Uh, HIPAA, the basic privacy law was written uh, anticipating uh, routine medical encounters, uh, routine medical charts, routine blood tests. Uh, it didn't anticipate uh, this depth of personal information or uh, the other risk that is not just you, uh, it's a whole range of family members who may be compromised. Right, and NIPA also proceeded from the assumption that the, the data was coming from healthcare providers, hospitals and doctors. And right, and right. So, so it really only binds uh, the providers and the insurance companies. Uh, it does not bind uh, third parties like a commercial uh, uh, database. Uh, they really are not subject to it. And the other legal protections are even weaker. Uh, let me just stop for a second and remind everyone, uh, if you've just joined us, that this is the business of healthcare, and that we would like to have your questions and comments. So if you'd like to join us, uh, our number is one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six, 942 And we'd, uh, we'd love to have you uh, call in. We may not take your question or your, your comment immediately, but they'll stack them and we'll take them as we get to it. Um, can I just chime yes, in with one thing? Do. I feel like we've been talking about a number of different things with respect to direct-to-consumer testing, and I just want to make sure that we're all clear that, you know, there are a variety of different direct-to-consumer genetic tests out there that range from ancestry to, as Art said, recreational, which could be around, uh, you know, intelligence or uh, proclivity for a certain sport to true health information. Um, and it's really important for consumers to be aware of what it is they're getting and what the limitations are of each of those tests. They're going to get back different, very different things. 
Um, mm-hmm. And the amount of information generated, the privacy considerations are different. You know, I think just as opposed to lumping it all into one category of direct-to-consumer, thinking about it in those different categories, how people are using it, what they're looking for, and what they're hoping to get out of it is significantly different. And what some of the risks are associated um, are different, depending on what the motivation is and, and the type of data generated and how that's stored and who's uh, who's generating it are just things that we should keep in mind as we have this conversation. I had a question stored up that I was going to ask you that I pretty much don't expect you to be able to answer, but let me ask it anyway. Do you have any idea what the composition of the, the market is, the people who go to these services? Uh, what percentage of them are driven by the what art calls recreational uh, or a genealogic um, information aspects rather than the medical ins- So I certainly have my suspicions, um, but I don't have any data to support that. I think, you know, because most direct-to-consumer testing is uh, offered through a variety of different commercial entities, they keep that information pretty close to the vest. Um, You know, they've published different numbers on the number of customers they have, um, and I believe there's around 12 million people. Uh, that have gone through direct-to-consumer testing now is the most recent number I saw published. Um, if I had to guess, I would say that the majority of those, somewhere between two-thirds and three-quarters, are likely ancestry and recreational, uh, mm-hmm. with a quarter to a third being health-related. And I've heard some very interesting advertisements and discussions on television about that aspect of people saying that they found out a I've got this long-lost cousin. I've got um, – I, I thought I was um, mm-hmm. Scottish, but I'm Italian, mm-hmm. and that's changed the food that I like. Uh, I'm not sure I buy into all of that. but uh, It's amazing the power of suggestion. <laughs> but I've also heard about people meeting folks that they – you know, complete strangers that now they treat as close relatives. And I wonder if there's much um, – opportunity for scamming and other stuff that goes along there. We're coming up on a break, so I'm going to use that as a teaser question. It'll it'll be something we come back to after the break when we're looking at the issues and the problems that may go along with this this boom. Rob, it looked like you were poised to say something before tonight. Well, I, I, I was going to point out that people may have their own reasons and, and there there are risks to, to fulfilling uh, each each one of them. Uh, but, you know, the saying uh, on the Internet, if you're not paying for the service, uh, you're the product. Now, most of these sites do require people to pay, but the real value here is not the money that you're paying to upload your data. The real value is the database that the companies are That's accumulating, right. uh, and you should be aware that you're really um, facilitating that. Yeah, I think that's a good point. In, in, in the few moments that we have before we go to break now, uh, let me uh, put two other things on the table. For individuals seeking to maximize their own health in terms of prevention and cure, um, one model is the Geisinger Medical Center. Um, it's in middle Pennsylvania, uh, close by here, and they have uh, an initiative that they call My Code Community Health, where they're trying to get a very large number of people to share their genetic information for the purpose of providing better health care to those people. It's uh, an important research aspect, but it seems to me that it's uh, more focused on individuals protecting their own health. And then for the larger society, the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, has a very big initiative going on. It's called All of Us. Uh, If you go um, on the web, All of Us, 
the way you'd expect to spell it, all one word, .nih.gov, will lead to a very interesting video I saw for the first time last night. If you haven't seen it, check it out. So let's start off uh, first talking about uh, the problem with people uh, making the right use of the genetic information. Aaron, in the old days, when a doctor would say, you need to have a genetic test, um, and then you had that test done through the doctor's offices and referral, um, it came with genetic counseling. Tell us about the problems that might come from not having that kind of counseling readily available. Yeah, so there's been a a really big evolution in how we offer genetic testing uh, to patients and consumers. As you said, Skip, it used to be that your doctor would recommend a particular genetic test or you would recommend you would recognize a family history and go and talk to a genetic counselor who would explain to you what the likelihood was of having a positive test, identify the right test for you. Um, and the testing was fairly limited. It was focused on one or just a handful of genes that really targeted the disease or diseases you were at risk for based on your personal or family history. Now, when we think about um, genetic testing in a direct-to-consumer fashion, um, consumers are going out and self-selecting panels or products that may or may not meet their medical needs. Um, I think in some cases, you know, you have a patient who has a family history of breast cancer and they might go to a company like Color Genomics, which offers a fairly comprehensive hereditary cancer panel. They do require a physician authorization, but they will help facilitate that on the back end. Um, so it's, it is direct to consumer, but with physician support in the background. Um, if somebody goes to a company like 23andMe and they say, I have a family history of cancer, you really want them to understand that the limitation of the cancer, hereditary cancer testing available through 23andMe is that they only test for three mutations that are associated with hereditary cancer that are specifically common in the Ashkenazi Jewish population. So the person who goes to 23andMe may think I've had a hereditary cancer test, but the reality is if they are not of Ashkenazi Jewish descent, that test has not ruled out much of their hereditary cancer risk. And so, you know, as with all, all products, genetic testing or otherwise, you know, there is an issue of the need for consumers to read the information presented because 23andMe does clearly present that information. But as we know, you know, we're a uh, immediate gratification society that skims information instead of reads it in many cases. And so uh, the onus is on the consumer to look for and recognize those limitations and process them and understand them, which may be a high bar for some consumers, uh, versus in the past where we've really relied on our healthcare professionals to guide us through that process. Right, yeah. And that's, and that's a, a very important subset of the medical system mm -hmm. that you as a genetic counselor have been much a part of. Mm -hmm. that, Rob? Yeah, and, and, and I'm, I'm 
I'm sure you've seen, uh, for the cancer screening, uh, generally you wouldn't look at the gene in isolation. You'd look at family right. histories mm-hmm. and see what uh, relatives, uh, what had happened with them. Mm-hmm. And then you often find mutations that are not clearly deleterious. Yeah. They're, they're unknown, uh, and they just uh, indicate some kind of a risk, uh, which could be zero or it could be devastating. Uh, and so you need to work through uh, these mutations of unknown significance uh, to try to figure out what they mean. So uh, to use a consumer-oriented DTC test Mm -hmm. for clinical diagnosis is extremely dangerous, and I I do hope that the warnings are are clear. Yeah, I think it's it's just increasingly important that consumers ask themselves the question of, is this test going to answer the question I have? and seek medical advice to help them answer that question. In some cases, it may. uh, And in other cases, it may fall really short of what they're hoping to get. Um, And so, you know, at Genome Medical, we're a telemedicine organization that helps to support patients in that process. They can come to us with their direct-to-consumer test results so we can help determine, does this answer your question? Do you need additional question, uh, additional testing? And there are other similar services out there, but recognizing that um, there are limitations to every product, uh, direct-to-consumer testing, but everything else as well, and, and making sure that you can self-identify when you when you know what those limitations are and, and when you need help navigating that. This is Art. I was just yes, please. And say, I have two other concerns aside from the counseling and getting uh, proper advice when you get something that might be frightening to you from a over-the-counter uh, direct-to-consumer test, not something you're getting at the clinic or from a doctor, which many people still do. One is I worry that all this emphasis on genetics, the advertising, the take a DNA test kit for Christmas or a holiday or your birthday or, you know, even ads that say let your whole family get tested, although it's a little weird why you do that if they're all your biological relatives, you're probably going to get the same info out of that anyway, except maybe to find out that one of them isn't your biological <laughs> relative. But uh, Mom? <laughs> exactly. But uh, Merry Christmas to you, too. But, um, but there's a uh, concern that we're putting all the emphasis around disease on the individual, that it's getting very focused on it's your issue. I'll even go further and say you're to blame. And what I mean by that is, Let's say I have a risk factor for diabetes or I had a risk factor for asthma and I was getting better tests that allowed me to see this. Well, I may want to be yelling at the government to or the EPA to stop relaxing pollution levels and make the air easier to breathe. If I live in India, I don't have to do genetic testing. The air is so thick with pollution that everybody has respiratory problems. It's not biology. It's in the environment. Similarly with weight. I understand that weight is a big issue for health, but if we're selling sugary beverages and there's a fast food joint every 10 feet on the way home, it may not just be your problem about your genes that leads to health issues. So one big issue I have is, yeah, genetic risks are important, but we're losing track of the role that environment uh, plays in our health, and it's major. Clean water, vaccination, pollution of the air, and on and on and on it goes, we're not spending in the same way, and we don't hear about it in the same way. In fact, we're getting worse at it. The current administration is cutting back 
on environmental protections. And the other gripe when you sort of say, well, it's in your genes is it becomes, you know, you can worry about minor risks if you're generally healthy and you're thinking, do I want to take one of these heavily advertised tests? I tell you, look, take the same money. Don't worry if you don't have something in your family or you don't have some reason to be concerned about your health and get a gym membership or do uh, engage in healthy lifestyle change. Um, those are things you can do without testing anything. I wish more of us did it. We're not clear that getting a genetic risk factor would make us change our behavior. I own a technology. I'm looking at it as we're talking right now. It's called a scale. Very predictive <laughs> of risk factors. Some days I get motivated and think, I'm going to lose some weight standing on this thing. Other days I look at it and say, damn, that's a shame. Too heavy. <laughs> and then head off to find some chocolate cake or something. You know, so we're not that great in linking risk factors to change in behavior. We don't really know how to do that well. And even if you were thinking, well, do I want to get a genetic test? We kind of know what the keys are to healthy lifestyle if you're a generally healthy person. Yeah, I don't know if uh, 23andMe and Ancestry have, have changed this any, but over the years, um, I've heard a number of people scapegoat their genes. They yeah. say, oh, I'm, I'm not eating too much. That's just the way my body processes yeah. things. I can't control that. Yep. Yeah. And I, I don't buy that, and I don't buy the idea that genes don't work inside an environment, right? There's always a context. Genes work against other genes. Genes work against your uh, developmental upbringing, and they work in the environment you live in. But there's nobody on TV that's saying, hey, you know, uh, Scott Pruitt just cut back on uh, pollution protection, so expect another 20,000 asthma cases next year. That's a risk factor. When you mentioned before about complaining to the EPA, I was wondering... Do you have any reason to think the EPA would listen? <laughs> um, if we can go back, though, Art had written an op-ed uh, not long ago um, criticizing uh, 23andMe for advertising uh, related to the World Soccer Cup, uh, suggesting that people would choose who to root for by who they were genetically linked to. And I think we have a hypersensitivity uh, these days about uh, people who are different from us. And uh, one of the things that genetic testing does is reveal that, yeah, we're, we're not all one under the skin. We're different. But we shouldn't uh, accentuate those differences. Art, do you want to pick that up and, and make that point a little bit more, particularly for people who weren't with us the first half hour? Yeah, so 23andMe and Fox Sports have got this campaign they're running. Some people will have heard it. It runs all the time, particularly on sports talk radio outlets. You can see it during uh, the basketball playoffs, the hockey playoffs right now. They're fishing for uh, viewers for the World Cup, which is coming, I think, in two weeks, coming out of Russia, but it's missing someone, the USA. We don't have a team. So Fox Sports linked up with 23andMe and said, well, here's a way to get viewers. We'll tell them to root for people that are genetically like them or similar to them. Uh, get a 23andMe test kit, find out if you have any Argentinian ancestry, and then root for Argentina. I think this is crass racism. It's just not true that there's an Argentinian or a French, or for that matter, an American genotype. We have all kinds of mixes. So do countries like Brazil, uh, obviously, with uh, slave histories and people immigrating in from different parts of the world. It isn't clear why you would encourage people to root for genes 
um, that that seems to me quite uh, bizarre. Normally, when I go to a sport, I want to root for skill. I don't root for people, hopefully, because I think, oh, there's a white guy. He he he's like me. I'll root for him. I don't care how the team is playing or what their performance is. So you'd have to look hard to find that team, wouldn't you? Yeah, that's true. That's true. But um, then maybe that's why I don't uh, find it so attractive. But again. We're not calling out this blatant pseudoscientific racism that is all over these ads. Where's the protest? Where's the pushback? Where's the genetics profession, scientist, doctor saying, what are you talking about, root for genes? It's, it sounds like something out of uh, Donald Trump's worst immigration policy nightmare. Let me, let me register one uh, counterpoint on that, though. Uh, my wife, with my Christmas gift to her, um, found out that she's not uh, Romanian and Swedish, as she thought she was. She's uh, a mix of a lot of things. She's, I used the term before, mongrel. I mean that in the most loving way. <laughs> um, and she's a surprisingly large percentage Neanderthal. <laughs> <laughs> and you didn't know that. <laughs> I had my suspicions. <laughs> okay. uh, but, I mean, again, all right, so let's say she is more... She's got the markers from Neanderthal ancestry. What the heck does that mean? I mean? What does it mean? Is she, is her lower half Neanderthal and her top half more Romanian? I mean, when you start talking about root for genes, you're talking about very complex systems. Most of our genetic determinants are involved with our biology in terms of, you know, how our digestive tract works or what's going to happen in terms of bone formation. They're not about how well I kick a ball, which is a learned skill, um, something that you have to practice and acquire. I understand there's muscles and bones involved, but this whole idea of saying, you know, I'm 52% Welsh, which I see on these ads. Really? 52? And what exact parts of you are the uh, 52%-ish? It, it seems to me... That's both inaccurate in terms of what we understand about how genealogy actually works in terms of heredity, and then it gives this sense that we can chop ourselves as people around the world to these very precise groups, which I think is false. I, I, I think the first thing this shows is we need a Neanderthal team in the uh, World Cup. <laughs> I think if Fox wants to up its ratings, that would be the first thing I would do. Um, I, I think the real danger here is the patina of science. Uh, we have always had our family legends and family ancestries, and, and Grandma said that our great-great-great-great-grandfather did come from uh, Argentina or uh, Albania or, or whatever. Um, now we have a genetic test that supposedly – uh, precisely tells us that uh, that's resulted in 52 percent of of our genome. Um, it it does harken back to the uh, genetics uh, genetic engineering days of of 100 years ago, uh, where the pseudoscience of uh, genetics um, and uh, uh, genetic um, uh, differentiation uh, captivated a lot of people and was the excuse for a lot of, of racism. Um, what you find out through these tests uh, may not be any more accurate than grandma's uh, family legend, uh, but it does seem more systematic and scientific, so people are more likely to believe it, and I think that's where the danger is. Let me raise something that we touched on before, uh, and that um, is bad things that can be done with mm -hmm. this information. 
Uh, we have the Americans with Disabilities Act. It dates back to 1991 to make sure that, among other things, employers don't discriminate against people because of their uh, physical abilities. Um, we have, dating back, I guess, to 2006, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, referred to as GINA, very often, that says employers and insurers can't use your genetic information to discriminate against you um, in terms of insurance premiums or insurability or employment uh, promotion, etc. Um, employers, um, in some cases, they pay for gym memberships. In some cases, they uh, will um, buy you a Fitbit so that it, you'll be encouraged to uh, exercise more and uh, and. Keep yourself in better health so that the employer's insurance premiums uh, are less. Um, are there any risks? And I'll turn to you, Rob, because I know that you're more focused on the regulatory aspect of this. Are there any risks that you think we're getting into here with these DTC tests? Maybe an employer pays for the DTC test. Uh, can he then have access to the information? They probably could have access to the information. The gene law would limit how they could use it. They couldn't make hiring or firing or promotion decisions based on it. But they might still know information about you that could be used in subtle ways to try to skirt around the law. And once it's in the database, it's, of course, prone to hacking or disclosure mm -hmm. in other ways. It raises other things. If there's a hack, if there's a data breach, do these companies report it? How do they report it? How quickly do they report it? This is a, a broader concern than just with DTC genetic testing, but it's something that we need to be aware of here. Yeah, so the HIPAA law is very clear about the responsibility of healthcare providers to report breaches, and we've had lots of those reports recently. Uh, it would not apply if you have an employer that is not a, a providing you with health care. Uh, so the reporting would most likely be governed by the terms of service and the privacy provisions, uh, and that would basically form a contract between you and the company. And I don't know if anyone uh, other than the lawyers who wrote them has, has read those, and if they have, if, if they actually understand everything that's in them. Uh, but I think that would be the main protection you'd have. I think this is an area that's crying out for legislation. Last night in preparation for this uh, broadcast, I went online and downloaded the privacy statements of 23andMe and Ancestry DNA and started trying to read it. An hour later, I fell asleep. <laughs> there, one of the things I noticed, though, and the, there are a few other companies that I looked at, uh, they're diverse. There's a lot of similarity, but there's a lot of difference, too. Uh, to your knowledge, folks, is there any uh, requirement that these privacy statements have certain elements, and uh, is there uh, enough commonality in them? I'm not aware. Again, this is where I think legislation is needed. Uh, they may be governed by the new European Union law. On it's the GDPR. Yeah, yeah. On, on personal information. Now, that applies only to companies that are doing business in the European Union, but many right. American mm -hmm. companies are doing that. And right, I, right. I, I've gotten dozens and dozens of uh, emails recently about privacy policy changes. Mm -hmm. that's, that's my work for July set aside. Yeah, so so you would have the right to access the information. You would have the right to limit uh, the way it's shared. Uh, but you have to know about those rights, and you'd have to take some action. Right. I talked to a friend recently, uh, again, in preparation for this broadcast, and asked if he'd given any thought to this. And he said, yes, when he signed up for 23andMe, he uh, marked no for everything related to sharing. 
when we were talking before about the benefits to society that could come from this uh, sharing of data. If too many people are concerned about this and just say no, no, no across the line, that benefit's going to be undercut. Aaron, do you want to speak to that? Yeah, so I think that the question about sharing for research purposes um, gets at two points. One is is the point that was just made about any commonalities in terms of regulation. So if you're doing research um, that's governed under the HHS rules around uh, around research, there are certain privacy considerations that would need to be common across all of those Um I know that would apply to 23andMe. I don't know about the status of research with respect to Ancestry DNA. Um, You know, the majority, 23andMe, has been, um, I think, fairly public about the high rate of opting in among their consumers with respect to research. And so I think it is a concern um, and it's it's something to be aware of. What is the negative impact on population benefits if, if enough people decline to participate in research. Um, but certainly what we've seen historically, at least with 23andMe, is a fairly high rate of opting in. And I think that, you know, although all of us has just recently launched their recruitment efforts, I think that will also be another good sign of how altruistic the population is, how many people are opting into these population health studies. Certainly Geisinger, um, Geisinger's My Code study that you raised earlier has also reported a high rate of consent uh, among the individuals that they approach for research. So, although we tend to be a little bit self-serving as a as a population, I think in America, um, we are seeing fairly good buy-in uh, to these large population studies, and that may be altruism, and it may also be just a change, kind of a generational change in how we think about privacy. Right. If you think about our open nature on Facebook and other areas, I think perception of privacy and the need to keep things private has changed over time. You know, one one thing to add on to that uh, helpful comment is I do worry that if you're recruiting through commercial genetic testing bases, not Geisinger, not the uh, NIH project that Skip mentioned earlier, all of us, but the companies doing the uh, pay us for your spit, send us your spit, send us a fee, that sort of thing. I think they're skewed toward whites. And I also think they're skewed toward middle and upper class whites. If you're a poor person, you're not likely to spend money going out and getting a genetic test. And then we have, you know, groups in the U.S., Korean Americans or Filipino Americans that are relatively small minority numbers. Genetic databases won't apply to uh, some Americans, and there's also a wariness on the part of some groups to get into sharing of information or participate in research. So one area that really needs some work is not just getting raw numbers, but getting real representative involvement, and then probably linking these databases to databases where recruitment goes on in other countries, say India or Korea or certain parts of Africa where they have the numbers we don't have those same numbers. We're unlikely to build up those numbers. So if you want to make a genetic future in terms of research that's valuable to all Americans or to all the world, I think we've got to get uh, smarter in our recruitment. Let me uh, let me say we have only about one minute before the end of the show. So if we could get uh, 
15 to 20 seconds from each of our uh, other guests. Erin, do you want to uh, give yeah. us your last thoughts? So one quick response to Art's comment is I think that's very true of commercial companies, but I also think yeah. it's true in research that we, we underrepresent minorities. doesn't matter if it's a commercial entity selling a product, which has its own issues, um, but we also see that in academic medicine as well. Rob, you're ready to say something. I'm going to cut you off. We're out of time. I didn't. I didn't manage that very well. I very much appreciate the, the three point. of you. The three <laughs> of you joining us. I'd like for us to have another show dealing with this issue. So maybe we'll get a chance to to have it again. Thank you all for joining us on the business of healthcare. Please join us again every Tuesday from 12 until 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Thank you. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.